morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten speaking to you from Ottawa, Canada. As longtime listeners of our show know, and perhaps first-time listeners will now learn, each and every week I am blessed with a guest who will help me focus on unpacking some of the more significant aspects of the parasha, the weekly Torah portion that is read in synagogues throughout the Jewish world. This week, we continue our exploration of the parashiot, the weekly portions in the book of Exodus, Shemot, the second book of the Hebrew Torah. And the parasha begins in Exodus 13, verse 17, and continues through chapter 17, 16. I want to give you an overview of the parasha before we delve into the specifics. Soon after following the children of Israel to depart from Egypt, Pharaoh chases after them to force their return. And the Israelites find themselves trapped between Pharaoh's army and the sea sometimes known as the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds. God tells Moses to raise his staff over the water, and the sea splits, according to the Torah, to allow the Israelites to pass through, and then closes over the pursuing Egyptians. At the conclusion of this episode, Moses and the children of Israel, uh, led by Miriam, sing a song of praise and gratitude to God. In the desert that follows the walk through the sea, the people suffer thirst and hunger and repeatedly complain to Moses and Aaron. God miraculously provides food and sweetens the bitter waters of Marah. Later, has Moses bring forth water from a rock by striking it with his staff. He causes manna to rain down from the heavens before dawn each morning and quails to appear in the Israelite camp each evening. The children of Israel are instructed by God to gather a double portion of manna on Friday, as none will descend on Shabbat, the divinely decreed day of rest. Some disobey and go to gather manna in the seventh day, but find nothing. Aaron preserves a small quantity of manna in a jar, which the text tells us is a testimony for future generations. Our Torah portion concludes with a very unusual episode. We're told that in Riphidim, the people are attacked by the Amalekites, who are defeated by Moses' prayers and an army raised by Joshua. This is an overview of the Torah portion known as Bashalach, when he sent is the translation of that in the generic. And with me this morning, speaking to us from Rio de Janeiro, is Rabbi Joseph A. Edelheit, who has uh, celebrated 50 years in the rabbinate. During those 50 years, he's served a number of congregations in the Midwest of the United States, and now serves uh, congregations or unaffiliated Jews in Rio de Janeiro. He can correct and add to that if he'd like to. He has an unusual resume. His life has not only been 
one of serving the Jewish people in congregations. He worked diligently when HIV AIDS emerged as an issue in the United States, and eventually his work was recognized as he was asked to serve on President Bill Clinton's Presidential Advisory Council between 1996 and 2000. And he began and finished his doctoral work, a doctor of ministry at the University of Chicago. And through that work, became uh, a professor of religion and Jewish studies and has devoted a great deal of his work to teaching and uh, sharing in an interfaith capacity. Um, he was, he has served, as I said, as an academic, as a congregational rabbi, and certainly as an author. Uh, and he helped facilitate a choral Holocaust memorial program known as To Be Certain of the Dawn to the State University in Minnesota and nearby Catholic University. Um, he later took more than 250 students and faculties in France and Germany and performed this unusual symphony and choral uh, at concentration camps with survivors in the audience. It is with great pleasure that I introduce to you and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, Rabbi Joseph Edel Height, known to me as uh, Joe. Um, and we are blessed to have him speaking to us from South America. So welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. It's a pleasure to study with you again. Thank you, Steve. And uh, our friendship spans time and space. So uh, no more need to reintroduce me. Simply our friendship is Perfect. why I come on your show. I appreciate that, and I know our listeners do as well. Um, we're going to begin our conversation in chapter 17, towards the end of this week's parasha. And I'm fascinated that your overview helps us understand that Bishalach, the primary narrative focus, is on leaving, the plagues are done, the act of exodus now requires a little bit of drama. And so we're going to get Yam Suf, and not just Yam Suf, but the Pharaoh and his armies will be engulfed in the water. And I emphasize water because that becomes a leitmotif that extends to where we're going to look at the text together. That's a great segue for our listeners. Um, if our listeners can picture either uh, by virtue of having seen a number of movies regarding um, the Exodus or having uh, traveled to Universal Studios in California, if you can picture the miracle of walking through the uh, walls of the sea as it's described in the text, um, and recognize that the walls collapsed uh, not on the visitors to Universal Studio, but on the Egyptians, and in fact provide life to the Israelites and take away life uh, from the Egyptians, it 
Hurt matches the segue of this parasha in talking about the dual nature of water. And, and the confusion, Yamsuf. Yamsuf means Sea of Reeds. The translation in Red Sea, the cinematic drama and our visualizing. What if they walked across the marshes right. in Goshen? And when I taught this every semester at a public state university, I would give them the option. Do you want the possibility of marshes or Cecil B. DeMille? <laughs> and every class voted, no, don't take away the drama. All right. I'm going to have water and drama with which to begin chapter 17. And so let me read for the listeners who may not have a text in front of them a bit of uh, chapter 17 before you lead us in a conversation. So um, the entire community of the children of Israel journeyed from the desert of sin to their travels by the mandate of the eternal. They encamped in Riphidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. People quarreled with Moses, and they said, give us water that we may drink. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the eternal? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses, and they said, why have you brought us up from Egypt to make me and my children and my livestock die? of thirst. And Moses cried out to the eternal, what shall I do for this people? Just a little longer, and he says, they will stone me, uh, suggesting that it is, what have you done for me lately? Um, Moses, then God said to Moses, pass before the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take into your hand your staff, which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I shall stand there before you on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people will drink. Moses did so before the eyes of the elders. And he named the place Massah and Meribah, because the quarrel of children of Israel, because of their testing the Lord, saying, is the Lord in our midst or not? I think that gives us a beginning. So we have the great origin story of the Israelites. They've not yet become Jews, but they are now freed from slavery. And what do they experience? They experience an army coming after them, the miracle of God saving them in the water. Then they get hungry. Whatever it is they're eating is not enough. Then they get thirsty. That's not enough. This becomes the leitmotif. This is the description of freed slaves who have not yet matured into a self-sufficient community. Freedom brings challenges. Moses has not yet actually figured out why he accepted this leadership role. 
our in our understanding of slavery would lead us to consider that the Israelites were not well fed in slavery, and that certainly we would never have considered from the narrative that they had easy access to water. Um, and yet their complaints in the wilderness were, it was so much better in Egypt. We had so much uh, food and drink. Um, it, the holdover of the slave mentality permeates this entire uh, parashah. And becomes the way we come to understand this, people. This, these few verses of 17, underline them and then draw a note to yourself. See you in Numbers 20. It is repeated in Numbers 20, and it will be in Numbers 20 that Moses, having buried his sister Miriam, the people quarrel again and ask for water, and this time God says, talk to the rock. But Moses, tired, angry, flustered, mourning his older sister, does what? He repeats chapter 17 of Exodus. He strikes the rock, not once, but twice, and it is that act for which he's punished by not going into the land. So these few verses become a significant touchstone. Let's use that image of the rock. This is how the people tragically behave until ultimately a new generation must be born. I have um, a thought which comes to me from something I was teaching this morning that I want to um, offer to you for your comment. Um, I was teaching uh, a class on um, Islam this morning. And we read a, uh, a document um, from the 7th century um, from Islam in Jerusalem, where um, one of the descendants of Muhammad asks the Israelites um, to clear the rubble from the Temple Mount. And he says to them very specifically, when you have found the foundation rock, Tell me. And when I was teaching this morning, I reminded the class of the story of the foundation rock in Islam and the story of uh, the rock from which uh, uh, Jacob lay his head to see the ladder stretching from earth to heaven. But it never struck me until this moment how early in the narrative a rock become central. And I'm wondering if you have some thoughts, given your background in teaching interfaith communities about this image of a rock and why the rock becomes so important. Look, by the way, in Catholicism too, one of the names of God is Sur Yisrael, rock of Israel. 
we know that the uh, crucifix, crucifixion, takes place on what is called Golgotha, the rock, the skull, uh, just outside the walls. We've both visited and lived in Israel. Maybe some of your listeners have too. This is a barren country in which rocks, small mountains of a few boulders, become a significant point not only of stopping, but it could well have been an oasis. So you pass the Yam Suf, whatever Yam Suf meant, and now you are beyond Egypt. Now, how do you come to know yourself as resilient and reliant? Food and water. The rock will be the source of water. So rocks for Christians and Muslims drawing from the history of the people wandering a wilderness will draw upon rocks. We also think of the rock at the center of the Temple Mount, the rock that Muslims think to have been that moment, that place, which was where Abraham attempted or was willing to offer up the sacrifice of Isaac. So rocks, boulders are a physical reality in a wilderness, not a desert like Saudi Arabia. This topography has some vegetation, brush, tamarisk, but rocks, you're correct, Steve, become a physical placement. And we get a name here. We always get what, what is called etiology. They name this place for what happened at the place. And this idea of bitter waters because of behavior would be interesting to wonder if the times in which we're living will create new naming of places in Israel. Wow, that, that is a, uh, a, a leap, but not an insignificant leap, because the Torah is filled with place names that re recognize significant events. Uh, I did not know that God was in this place, says Jacob. And he then names it Beit El. Right. Uh, and we could go through other uh, uh, narratives in which that happens. Um, and it appears that other traditions, of course, um, follow suit uh, and take from the Hebrew uh, text the notion that interactions between the divine and individuals or the divine and groups uh, calls for the place to have a name that recognizes it. Um, you introduced to our listeners the notion that um, this place is called Masa and Miribah, um, and the waters are known as the waters of Miribah, the waters of, and how would you translate it? Uh, well, 
rebellion, uh, a refusal to uh, someone who it's not just merely bitter. It, it has an intentionality connected to it. And you have these ideas that the people are quarrelsome. It's an old word that we don't use, but what does it mean to quarrel, to, excuse me, bitch and moan, to, you said earlier, what have you done for me lately? So if we go back all the way to Exodus 3, God calls Moses by saying, I've heard the people cry because of their oppression and sadness. We've come 14 chapters and the people are quarreling. Why didn't you just leave us there? It would have been better than to die here of thirst. Oh, by the way, our cattle are going to die too. Um, You know, sometimes the biblical narrative does allow us to chuckle at these anomalies. Um, The people are in the midst of the greatest miracle the Torah will describe, the exodus from Egypt, at this point, the crossing of the sea. Uh, All of this is the greatest miracle until the revelation at Sinai, which will take place in a couple of chapters. Um, And all they can do is complain. And by the way, our cattle, where did the cattle come from? Leave that aside for the moment, right? Our cattle are thirsty as well. Um, Of course, this gives um, rise to this notion that um, God tells Moses that these are a stiff-necked people, that they are a people who really cannot accept anything on face value, um, and that they will test their faith. Um, And it's an unusual expression of the testing of faith. It is. And, And look, I don't think we're giving any spoiler alerts here. This generation will experience more of God's immediate intervention in history than any generation of humankind. Ten plagues brought out of slavery, crossing Yom Suf, they will engage many experiences the Amalekites in a few verses, and they aren't the generation that enters the land. Because ultimately, before even the rock Moses strikes in Numbers 13 and 14, they don't believe in their own destiny in Numbers when they're said, can you do this? And even then, they don't believe they can do it. And now, they wander. I, I love the reformulation there, Joe. It's not that they don't have faith. They don't believe in their own destiny, which is a very different yes. dynamic that God yes. has proven to them. Uh, the God of the Israelites through this whole narrative has proven that this God, the God of their fathers and mothers, um, does have power, and it's power greater than even the gods of Egypt. 
So that's not a question anymore. It shouldn't be a question anymore about the power of God to intervene in history and change the course of history. This is all about can they believe in their own destiny? And tragically, they can't. Correct. And that becomes its own lesson. This is a forecasting, and water is a leitmotif, a metaphor that will be tracked through the entire rest of the biblical narrative. So now the question becomes, they are the bitter waters, but for whom are they bitter? The people, or maybe even the source of water, God. Bitter because of that quarrelsome group. Again, I love your metaphor. It's not just that the waters are bitter, because it doesn't say that. It says they are embittered. And therefore, we extrapolate, as you said, that they become the waters themselves that are embittered. And they are embittered not only, as you suggest, by slavery, but their own um, excuse their own inability to see the future. Perhaps that's um, the lesson of this week's Torah portion, that having emerged from Egypt, witnesses to so many great interventions by the Israelite God, the destruction of Pharaoh and Pharaoh's chariots, they are unable to see the future. And what do they do? like all victims who want to be sustained in their victim identity, uh, everything was better before you took us out. This is an ancient lesson with contemporary meaning. Well, it resonates, I think, to many of us today um, in terms of what can people leave the past behind? Um, so many of the conflicts that we witness as you and I are chatting are based upon the inability to look to a future. Uh, and it's not just conflicts in the Middle East, it's conflicts in Europe and it's political conflicts. Um, let us be, um, beholding to the grudges and the complaints of the past, real or imagined, rather than look to the future. And if we don't, we will tragically be like this generation. And not make it. Consumed. Consumed by the quarrels. I want to thank my guest, Rabbi Joseph Edelheit, this morning for helping us explicate In just a few verses, some of the power of the biblical narrative. Thank you for joining us. Um, Our show can be heard on CHRI 99.1 FM or as a podcast on CHRI.ca. Or you can download it from wherever you download your favorite podcast under the title Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten speaking to you again from Ottawa, Canada, wishing you shalom and a good day.